All right, um, so we are in the book of Luke, and we were in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Um, so if you have a Bible, open up to Luke 10. If you don't have a Bible, I'm, some of the folks will be walking down the aisles lugging these stacks of Bibles. They really need you to lift this burden from them and take one. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep it. The old adage is somebody whose Bible is falling apart is a sign that their life usually isn't. So it's a really good book to have. It's the only book in the world where you don't read it, it reads you. A lot of wisdom in those pages. It's living, it's breathing, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. A lot of you own them, but they, they serve as paperweights. It's good if they jump off the pages into your heart and you just watch how it transforms your life. So as we're getting ready to study, uh, I'm going to jump into Luke chapter 10. We didn't finish 9, and there's lots to cover in 10 that it seems seemingly I'm jumping over, but I'm actually going to come back to it. Um, and it, and it pertains to, we, we remember Jesus calling out the 12 and he sent them out in pairs and now he's going to send out the 70 in pairs and he's going to do the same kind of format, the edge method of how he instructs them. He explains it, he, he describes it, uh, and then he goes through that whole picture of it and he's going to do that for the 70 and there's a couple of other things in the middle of that, but I want to jump further, uh, to a passage, especially, um, today. Uh, I don't know if you've been following the news, but. Uh, our president, um, I, I know this is shocking, but he, he had a caustic Twitter, and, and I know that that just takes people off guard, and they're like, no, and, and I'm serious, he did. I thought that'd be funnier. Uh, but he's, he's in contention with one of our, our members of Congress, uh, Congresswoman Omar, and uh, told her to go back to Africa, and, and it's, it's really, it, it's, seriously, it's, it's getting intense, and you're seeing this debate, and then we saw one of the uh, immigration, one of the ICE facilities uh, vandalized, and there's been a shooting, and we're watching massive border influx, and all these things happening, and the nation is divided over this concept of immigration, and, and, and I would add illegal immigration, and some folks, even in the room, would struggle over that term, and, and it really is a divisive issue, and it's almost, uh, interestingly enough, divided along age. Older folks are more able to uh, grasp this concept of illegal immigration. Younger folks are like, no, you know, there's no such thing as illegal immigration. We're all humanity, and, and we, we come to a place where you're in the scripture, and we're going to see some interesting things in this passage, and the last time uh, I preached out of this, uh, a couple folks left the church. So, um, and the reason why is because I, I used an illustration, and in using that illustration, I had to own it myself. I had to go through the concept myself. But I had laid it out there, uh, giving an example of, of trying to understand exactly what Jesus was doing in the parable, and, um, and someone took offense to it. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say, I'm not going to give you an example. I'm going to have you come up with your own, uh, and that way maybe you won't leave. And I, I <laughs> first, first service was a lot easier than you guys. You're, you're, uh... No, but the idea is, uh, it, it is a tough passage to stomach. And honestly, as a minister, I'd like to skip over some of these difficult passages. I'd like to just move on and kind of cherry pick the ones that are easy to do as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to teach the ones that are difficult. But we teach the whole counsel of God's word, and that's how it works. And, and we come to a passage that, is very clear in its meaning in our initial reading and our study of it, but it's also going to pertain to other passages that are going to challenge us a little bit. And again, the room will be divided. And honestly, I don't seek to offend, although I think I'm gifted at it. I don't seek to offend. And, and really, you have to, listen, you have to choose to be offended. If you're waiting for something to find offense with, give me time, I'll, I'll do it. 
but the idea is you have to choose to be offended. And uh, I always tell folks that when you're sitting in a service, it's kind of like eating a whole Costco chicken. You know, you, 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 you eat the meat and you spit out the bones. And the stuff that's just, you know, you can't get your teeth on and it really doesn't have any nutrients, just chuck it. You can boil the bones later or something, but really good illustration. And, and as we're going through this, I, I know it's going to stretch everybody. And when I mean everybody, I mean everybody, including myself. Um, I have been processing through this, and it, it, it's, I'm looking at the country, and, and my heart's heavy. It really is. Um, but in the same regard, I think this has a lot to say to us, and I think it'll minister to us profoundly. I know in first service, the response was, was very comforting, and I was blessed by that. So I pray it'll do the same for you. Um, and with that, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. The passage reads, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Really good question, by the way. Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is it you're reading of it? What is your reading of it? What's in the law and what's your reading of it? So he picks his very first verse that comes to his mind. If I were to ask Christians in the body of Christ around America, most of them go, oh, John 3.16. If I ask people, what are you reading in your daily devotion? They'll say John 3.16, which tells me they're not reading. They're just quoting the only verse they know. I saw it at a football game on a sign. And that's, and that's basically what the Shema is in Deuteronomy 6. And he's just quoting a verse that he learned when he was 13 years of age. And so he's reciting it. So he answered and said, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, want, but he wanting to justify himself, interesting, justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, and by the way, we call this the parable of the Good Samaritan parable, parabolos, lines next to each other, parallel lines, uh, an earthly illustration for heavenly truth. We don't know if this is a parable, but it almost takes on parabolic nature in the way it's written. It could have been an event in the news that everyone in the community was familiar with, uh, and Jesus takes it on. So it, it could be a parable, it could be a story that happened, but either way, he's teaching them something. Verse 30, then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road and when he saw, G, uh, saw him, excuse me, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, who was another type of priest, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by the other side. And then it says, but a certain Samaritan, and I'll pause there if you'll look at me, Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Samaritans were half-breeds, half Assyrian, half Jewish. And they hated each other. So for the sake of illustration, as not to offend you, you pick the person you hate. And if you go, I don't hate anyone I'll pick it for you, or you can do it yourself. I want you to take somebody that you would really not want to stop and help. And we can't go further until I can see on your face that you found that person. All right. 
A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil like we did with Priscilla and Jerry, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, his beast of burden, like putting him in his car, brought him to an inn, the premier inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. So he took out two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among these thieves? Now, mind you, this is a Jewish scribe, a lawyer, who hates Samaritans. And Jesus says, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said to him, the he couldn't even say Samaritan. He said, the dude who showed mercy on him. That's the um, uh, transliteration in the, I don't know. He said, the dude that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now, before you sit, I want to show you where the Shema comes from. And that's in Deuteronomy 6. I'll read it to you. You can note it later. It starts with verse 1. The Shema is what the scribe, the lawyer, quoted. Verse 1 says, now, of, of Deuteronomy 6, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson. All the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. And when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand that they shall be frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of the house upon your gates. Almost finished. Two more verses and then you may be seated. Quit complaining. I stand the whole time. Romans 13, Paul writing, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And now we come to Leviticus 19, which is one of my favorite verses that people often quote to me. Leviticus 19, starting with verse 33. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God, we ask your blessing upon the study of your word. And as we undertake this study of Luke chapter 10, and this idea of who is my neighbor, and we see in Leviticus 19 that we are to care for the stranger who dwells within our land, that we're not to mistreat him. And Lord, we see that we're to love our neighbor. This is the fulfillment of the law. There's so much in this, Lord, and we ask that you would lead us, Holy Spirit, into all truth. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice that has allowed us to freely open your word. 
And as we do, Lord, our lives are profoundly affected and changed. As you challenge us, Lord, also equip us and bless us, Lord, that we would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat, if you would. So this is a difficult passage of Scripture. It's the only place in the four gospel accounts where we see what is called the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Most of you can give a recap because you've heard it quoted through the course of your life. Some maybe not, but I would say the majority can talk about this Good Samaritan that the religious people passed by and didn't help the guy. And then the guy that you'd least expect to help him was the one who helped him. And, and then this person was trying to justify himself, and he, you know, Jesus taught him a lesson. And this is often used towards us uh, as Christians uh, of our hypocrisy. And we have Good Samaritan Hospital, this idea that a man was la- left half dead. Half meaning if he had gone further, 51% in, it would be irreparable and he would die. He was on the verge of death, needed care, and if he had gotten any worse, he would have died. It said that, that um, in this picture, as he was coming down from Jerusalem to, Jer- to Jericho, he was apprehended by thieves. He was beaten ruthlessly. They stripped him of his clothing. They wounded him. So he's in a puddle of blood, and they departed him, leaving him half dead. Absolutely no compassion, no mercy. They left him. They wouldn't even take him out of his misery. They had left him at a place where he was going to ultimately die and freeze to death or bleed out. And by chance, a certain priest who's coming down the road, now he's coming down from Jerusalem, which means he's already been in the temple, he's already done his religious duty, and he's coming down, and you can imagine this man who's bleeding, and he's, he's actually a wayfarer, he's probably a, a, a businessman. He was plying his trade, they had stolen everything he had. He sees this priest coming down, he looks up and he says, oh, someone's going to save me. Imagine yourself being in a foreign country, third world country, um, absolutely destitute, you know, and, and you're, you're lost. You don't know the language. It's kind of frightening. Um, people like you are a target in that nation, let's just say, and, and, and you're completely lost in a very bad part of town, and you see two people walking with Bibles, and then you see a group of other folks that are concerning, but you see two people walking with Bibles. You'd, you'd be drawn to them, I'd assume. You have something in common. You're hoping that they're reading something that's affecting their heart. And you'd ask them for help and direction. Well, he sees this priest coming and he, he looks up and the man passes by. I don't have time for you. Well, then a Levite, which is even higher in the, in the food chain of the religious, he's coming down. He's thinking, now this is the poobah. I'm, I got an opportunity. And he passes by. And then Jesus is gutsy because he, he jumps right out and he, he calls for the question because it was his own disciples who had said earlier when they had gone into a town in Samaria that they rejected him. And he said, do you want us to call down fire on this city and just scorch these people? Maybe you don't remember that reading. But he uses the term Samaritan and he not only disses his disciples, but he also affects everyone there because not only, it, the, the, the hatred was mutual. There was an absolute hatred. Absolute hatred. And he uses this term, and he really steps out there. And again, I, I can put the illustration together for you, and, and, and you could walk out, and, and I would completely understand. There's some people that you just can't wrap your mind around 
wanting to ever help. Maybe some of you don't feel that way. Give me time, I imagine I could pick somebody. I just know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. I know that given circumstances, we tend to be, well, very selfish. And in this picture, Jesus puts, puts it right out there. So you know the story, you've seen the story, the Samaritan helps him, and, and at great expense to himself, and the scripture says he had compassion on him. We'll cover that later. But I want to jump up to the front of the passage, because it begins by saying that, behold a certain lawyer, a lawyer is someone who knows the law. By the way, how many people have ever heard this concept, this, this term, this statement, you can't legislate morality? Just raise your hand if you've ever heard that, you can't legislate morality. And it's been ingrained. By the way, every law is founded on somebody's morality. The idea of law is governance. This is right, this is wrong. And, and we come to a place where Aristotle said politics is the highest form of community because it combines morality with sociability. So we have to get along with each other and we have to decide what we're going to agree is right and what we're going to agree is wrong. I'm not allowed to steal from you. Okay, we're going to put that in the laws. We have due process. We're going to put that in the laws. We're going to, and we go through this and we establish this and we agree to this compact and this set of laws that we're all governed by. You followed speed rules when you came here, um, traffic lights, I hope. You know, you, you've done all these things. And, and those laws, somebody put them on the books because if you violate those, you are violating what we have agreed to, which is right and wrong. So every law is based on morality. Now, where that morality comes from, whatever your moral standard is, there's two uh, opposing ideologies. One is man says and the other is God says. Uh, Christians, Judeo-Christian ethic is we have, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We, ex we acknowledge our creator and you look at the, the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments that were given on Mount Sinai to Moses when they were wandering in the wilderness. First five commandments, relationship with God. Second five commandments, relationship with each other. So three to five million Jews who had come out of slavery lived together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army because they know how to treat each other. They're right with God, they're right with each other. They're right with God, they're right with each other. This is where it comes from, and now we apply it to each other. You remove this... And laws are only decided by us. And if it's decided by us, it's only those in power that make the laws. And thus we no longer have a God of justice who is justice. We now add what is called social justice. Social justice means if 51% of the people agree that this is moral, then the other 49% who disagree with it are now subject to the law that the majority has established. And that can change depending on culture, who's driving the culture. And we're left with subjective, not objective. We're left with subjected morality. And that changes. And you don't know what pronoun to use. You're subject to imprisonment. You don't, and you go through these things. And it's rapidly changing. And you have to stay abreast of it. Over here, God said. And so you have the Decalogue and you have the Levitical law. And it comes into this play. So this lawyer is... One who knows the Decalogue. He knows, he knows civil law. He knows God's law. And God's law and civil law in the Jewish mindset were one and the same. And as he begins to apply this, they send him, and other scriptures say they sent him to trap Jesus. 
But he stood up, which means everyone was seated. It would be like me speaking and one of you stands up and you begin to ask me a question in the middle of the teaching. And, and as you stand up, it, the scripture says he tested. The, the lawyer stood up to test Jesus. The word test is also translated tempted. It's only used three times in the scriptures. And you find it in, uh, in Matthew chapter 4 uh, when it, it, it's, it's in the intensive. Matthew 4 when Satan tempted or tested Jesus in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. So this is intense. He's testing him. He wants to, tr- and the Bible says you don't tempt the Lord your God. You don't test the Lord your God. But he does. He stands up and Jesus says, I'm God, you're done. And cook him. He, he just stands up and he tests Jesus and he says, what shall I do? And this is interesting. You combine these. What shall I do, which is active, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as a minister, with folks who question faith, I often get these, you know, they're they're not there to find out uh, about the hereafter or to have uh, a relationship with God. They just want to dismiss the existence of God to justify their own life. And so they'll ask you questions whenever you sit with them. They'll ask you questions along the lines of this. Um, Did Adam have a belly button? (laughs) I don't know. I don't care. Where did Cain get a wife? Genesis may not know what I'm alluding to. Where did Cain get a wife? As though that matters. I can give you an answer, but I mean, you're not asking these questions in order to come to a place of faith. You're looking to find scriptures to justify your lack of belief in God. And you can do that all day. I've often had people say these things. I said, if I answer that for you, Will you, will you give your life to Christ? Well, I don't know about that. I'm calling for the question. Well, the beautiful thing about it is this man asks a really good question. This, this is one you'd want somebody to stand up and ask you in a service. What do I need to do to get right with God and have everlasting life? Because the clock's ticking, and I don't know if I'm dying today or tomorrow, or I, I know I'm dying because everybody has that in common. They, you know, what, what, what do I have to do? What, what, if there's an afterlife, what do I have to do? And he's asking the right question, but it's conflicting because he says, what shall I do to inherit? And we have will, trust, and probate attorneys in the church. I know of a couple. And, you know, when you're in a will, you get it when they die. What do I have to do? Nothing. You just get it. You inherit whatever they put you in. Well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the Bible says that you've been saved by grace through faith, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. If you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. And you will be right with God. That's where the word righteous comes. That we're separated from God by our sin. Sin means that we don't fulfill the law. We've missed the mark. We, we have not complied with the law of God. And, and there are, the Bible says, there are none righteous for all have sinned, missed the mark, and fallen short of the glory of God. Some of you are very moral, far more moral than myself. Some of you are very good people. And I often think to myself, how many times a day does a good person miss uh, fulfilling the law and miss the mark? And whether knowingly or unknowingly, how many times a day does a good person sin? And uh, let's, let's just say eight. I'm, I'm about 80,000 a day. Let's just give you eight. And if you're like, well, I'm, I would think maybe more like three. Well, let's add pride, and that'll be four. Okay. (laughs) 
So, so you have four times 365, and of course you're a moral person, so you're going to live long on the earth, so let's give you 80 years, and you multiply 365 times four times 80, and you're going to stand before a holy God who says that the wages of sin, one sin, the wage of sin is death. That's what separates you from me for all eternity, and your works of righteousness are but filthy rags. And I'm sorry, what were you saying? You're good, what? We don't get into heaven on our own merit. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Christ has done it all. Christ left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross. He paid the penalty. The wage of sin is death. He died in our place. We were on death row. I can't die for you. You can't die for me because we both have our own sins to pay. He was without sin, so he stepped into our place and said, I'm going to pay. I'm completely just and I'm merciful. I'm a just God and I'm a merciful God. And so he pays the penalty. His body was broken. His blood was shed. So he did everything. All we must do is receive it. Now, at this point he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't say, believe on me. He didn't say that to him. He heard the question the man asked, and Jesus turns to him knowing he's a lawyer, and he says, uh, he says, Perry Mason, what is written in the law? What is written in the law? For you younger kids, that was a lawyer show. What is written in the law? And what is your reading of it? Because it's amazing how we can all read the same law depending on the circumstances we're in and we can have a totally different interpretation of it. Anyone? Yeah. And he says, and what's your reading of it? Oh, he's, he stands and he says, uh, uh, you shall... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And all the Jews are like, yes, and Jesus said to him, you've answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Next. He realizes, wait a minute. My reading of the law in Deuteronomy 6 is like every other Jew, that when we read Deuteronomy 6 that I read you earlier, we don't look at a Samaritan, which you'll get to momentarily, we don't look at those people as our neighbors. We only live homogeneously. Right? We like to be around our kind. And um, I'm not so sure that that's legitimate. So would you mind if I asked you another question? Because you say, if I do this, I'll live, but I have some doubts about my reading of it. He says, um, and he actually wants to justify himself. I want to make sure that I'm right here. (laughs) Okay, I want to make sure that I'm right uh, because, you know, I know the Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. And if you look lustfully upon, yeah, but, but I know it says it be not drunk of wine, but of the Holy Spirit, but I know it says that we shouldn't covet, but, but is a disassociative conjunctive, which it's like somebody coming up, pastor, I really appreciate your messages, but and what you're saying is I don't, and I'm going to tell you what I really think right now. And this idea of justifying ourselves, we, we want 
we want to make sure that we're in the right. And wanting to justify himself, interestingly enough, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Just want to make sure we're on the same page, you and me. Who's my neighbor? And then Jesus just opens up a can of whoop. And he goes through this whole story. He says a Levite walked by him. The priest walked by him. The Levite walked by him. And the one who stopped was a Samaritan. And they're like, And then he said this. When he saw him, he was half dead. He was stripped. The others walked by to see if there's anything they could take from him. I imagine there was nothing left. They didn't bother to mend him or care for him. He sees him, and the scripture says he had compassion on him. I want to pause there. When, when do you help somebody? When you have compassion on them. Your heart's moved. And in the room, I said it earlier, we're divided. The younger folks in the room, I, I heard it was Churchill who said this, if you're, if you're not liberal when you're young, you're heartless. And if you're not conservative when you're older, you're brainless. You can interpret it any way you want, but the idea is when you're young, you care. When you're older, you figured out formulas and you, you see a homeless person, you're like, you need to get a job and quit just expressing the decline of Western civilization. <laughs> Mom, Dad, stop, help. You don't understand. You're just going to enable the behavior. Well, is there something we can do? Not today. We got other things to worry about. Let's go. And the car is divided. Maybe not in your house. I don't know. But younger folks are moved. You're in school. You want to, how do we resolve this? How do we help people? You get older and you're like, you know, every time I tried to help, somebody took advantage of me and I've gotten kind of callous and cold and these principles. And, and the scripture says this man had compassion on him. If you want to be generous and you want to help somebody and you have compassion, let me tell you what compassion is. Compassion costs you something. You can't be compassionate with other people's money. One person's in agreement. You can't be compassionate with someone else's money. It's got to cost you something. It's amazing how people, pastor, there's somebody that I, I found on the street, and I'm saying, can you take care of them? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, why did you bring, well, I just, I really felt for him. No, you didn't. You want me to take care of them. Compassion is costing you something. You do something. Well, I don't know what to do. Well, I can help you with some answers and direct you. And one of the reasons why we give money to people that are asking for a handout is because we want to use sage our guilt. And, and as I'm on the homeless commission for the city, the one thing that we, we want all of the citizens of the community to realize is giving a handout enables and does not help the problem. It doesn't. It exasperates it. And, and it's, it's just a cheap attempt. If you want to help, you have to have compassion. You have to do so. It has to cost you something, not a dollar or a wave on your way by, or half your sandwich. The scripture says, so he went to him, and this is compassion. He 
He went to him. He bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine. Wine is an antiseptic. The oil is a healing balm. And he set him on his own animal. He put the homeless guy in his car and drove him. <laughs> Smell? This is... <laughs> Hang on, let me, let me put a towel down on the back seat so you can sit there because, you know, it's the blood and everything. He... He brought him to an inn, so he checks him into the hotel. He pays for him, puts down two days' wages. You take your salary, divide it by 365, and that's what you get paid a day, and you put down two of those days for this person. And then he stays with him until the next day, and when he departed, he took out the two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper. He said to him, take care of him, and whatever you spend, when I come again, I'm going to come back and check up on him, because... When you have compassion on someone, it, it requires a long-term effort. When I come again, I will repay you. I'll pay you everything I owe you. Well, you, you don't understand. He may, I may have to take him to the hospital. If you do, I'll, I'll repay that. I'll take care of that. And then he turns to the lawyer and he says, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And you asked the question. I gave you a, a very clear example you go ahead and answer that question. He can't even say Samaritan. He said, uh, the dude who showed mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now that's heavy. That's heavy. And it's amazing how generous we are with other people's money. When you see a need, you bring it to the church and say, will you take care of this? You bring it to the city, will you take care of this? And the city's divided. We've got folks on this side and folks on this side and folks in the middle. The majority's in the middle, but you have folks out here. No, 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 no. I pay taxes and you are the mayor and you need to get these people off our streets and I don't want to see them. I pay taxes. I'm paying for the roads. Get them out of my face. Folks over here, you're the city. These people are suffering. You need to build a shelter for them and provide for them. And in the middle, they're like, I, I just, I mean, but, and then I, oh, because, and if you, but then, and then we, oh, this is difficult. No kidding. <laughs> so you're going back and forth. You're going back and forth on this. And it's just dead set on this and dead set on this and not so sure over here. But the one thing I can tell you is if you have compassion, it's going to cost you something. And the bummer is, as Christians, you understand the plight of this man who's half dead and in desperate need because that's you and that's me. When Jesus found us, I was dead in my trespasses. Isaiah 61, the beauty of the passage is that he heals. Jesus says in, or Isaiah says in 61 that Jesus said of himself in Matthew 4, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to comfort all who mourn and to console those, to give beauty for ashes and oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. They may be called trees of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. 
Psalm 147 says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. That's Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He found us half dead, dead in our trespasses. We were hurt, broken hearts, shattered lives, desperate. He stopped. He was the lifter of our head. He looked into our eyes, touched our heart, forgave our sins. He paid the penalty. He carried us. He took the burden. By his stripes we're healed. He endured what we deserved. He was crucified in our place. He paid a penalty we could never pay with a price we could never acquire. He set us free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He's cleansed us, our wounds. He's cleansed us of all unrighteousness. He was spit upon. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was crucified. And he's gonna come again. Process all that makes the Samaritan a little more palatable. How is it we can receive so much and give so little? He had compassion on us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There are none righteous, no, not one. While we were with enmity, at war with God, he sent his only son. We hated him. And he loved us this much. And we walk by and we don't have compassion. And if we do, we have misplaced compassion. Our children want to do something, but they don't understand that it has to cost you something. It doesn't come out of your parents' pocketbook. It'll come out of yours. And with this, it's a lot easier to see ourselves in the passage of Scripture in relation to the Samaritan. It's you and me. It's you and me. But I want to stop for a minute because this is where I begin to divide the room. I don't seek to cause division. It'll naturally occur. Because as we read out of Deuteronomy 6, where this this, um, Shema came from, the declaration in the passage says that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then it goes on to declare to the parents... These words which I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You go into Israel, and on every doorpost is a mezuzah with the the commandments at an angle. When you walk through, they touch them. And the Orthodox wear... The, the law on their wrists and they bind them and the boxes are between the frontlets they wear them here 
They, they take this passage and they apply it and they instruct their children and, and they teach them the law of God. And the, and the picture is that when you're teaching your children, it's, it's when you, you walk with them, when you talk with them, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, when you're praying with them at night, when they're going to bed, when they get up in the morning, you have a devotion with them. When you're traveling in the car, you're talking about these things. You're imparting it. And the problem is we lose the next generation. One of the things I love about going to the movies with my younger son, the two of us together when we go, it's always an opportunity for us to go through the, 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 uh, uh, the, the law of God. We'll go see a movie and, and we'll pick something that's real popular and we'll watch it. And then as we're driving home, I say, okay, what worldview do we have? What's the ideology? What do they try to impart? And we discuss it and, and, and I'm instructing him along the way. Sitting. I'm not sitting in the house. I'm sitting in the car. They didn't have cars back then, but I'm, I'm instructing him. We lay in bed at night, and, and I go to pray for them when they were younger, and they ask questions, and I instruct them through that. And they ask questions about life and struggles with their, their school and friends and all these other things, and you're imparting the law of God. You take them through practical examples, and they're observing your life because things are caught, not taught. And they're observing you, and you're teaching them, and you're pouring into them. And the problem is, in the church in America, we have, we have lost the law of God. There's no moral knowledge in America. It's the disappearance of moral knowledge. We give them away for eight hours, ten hours a day to somebody else. And when they come home, we're too tired. And, and this is the idea that, that they have to understand these things. So you have the individual who's responsible. When you have compassion, it has to cost you something. But as a family, you also have the responsibility to impart these truths. But then we, we took a look at another passage of Scripture in Leviticus... And in Leviticus 19, it says, And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, and you shall not mistreat him, the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now you're dealing with a country, a group of people. And so here's where the room divides. You see, in that passage I just read in Leviticus 19, If a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Our younger folks read that passage, and they say, we're supposed to, there's no illegal immigration. There's just immigration. We're human beings. We have the right to roam the earth freely, without boundaries or borders. And by the way, I just want you to know, countries were not man's idea. They were God's idea. He created countries, and he also said that you're to make disciples of all nations, which means this is a group of people in an agreement with a border compact and an ideology and the sovereignty of those borders. And yet you read it and you say, well, wait a minute. The scripture says that we're to treat them, the strangers among us, that, that, as one born amongst us, yes. But there's categories, and I want you to see this, because you have to understand Scripture to impart it to the next generation. In Scripture, in the Bible, there are actually three classifications of Israel's inhabitants, and so too in America, by the way. You have up here the native-born citizen. In Hebrew, it's called Esrach, a native-born citizen. The foreign-born immigrant who wants to convert and become a Jew or agree with the ideology, the compact, the agreements, and they're called a stranger, Gertzeg, stranger of righteousness. And this is what's referred to in Luke 19.34. But then there's also a third category, foreigner who comes into the land and lives by its laws but does not want to convert. That's called a stranger of the gate, also called sojourning stranger, Gertoshav. 
And in the Bible, God establishes four separate realms of authority, and I've covered three of them already, each having its own distinct responsibility. The individual, compassion has to cost you something. Two, the family, and you're required to impart these truths. The church, where we have authority that governs and how we operate. And then there's the civil government. So whenever the Bible gives a command, it's important to identify to which sphere that command is directed. So it brings us to the first group, natural-born Jews. In America, this is considered a native-born American citizen. I was born here. My father was born here. My grandfather would go all the way back. The second group, the stranger, is a foreigner that renounces his old country and fully commits to becoming a Jew, living by and conforming to the Hebrew Scriptures, who then has the same rights and privileges as a Jewish citizen. So you want to immigrate, you have to agree to the, the compact and the agreements and the laws of that land and what they hold to. Here's what it means in America. This means the foreigner who wants to become an American citizen and renounces all former allegiances, committing himself to abide by the Constitution and the laws, which are often God-centric, generally based on the Judeo-Christian ethic of morality. And then the foreigner becomes a naturalized American citizen. He then has the same general rights and privileges as a native-born citizen. And then the third group is someone who wants to come into the land and is willing to live by the laws of the land, but is unwilling to renounce allegiance to his former country and fully assimilate into the new country by the way of assimilation is not a dirty word, but merely means to fully conform, to become part of it. The Bible describes the person as a foreigner rather than a stranger. In America, this would be those who are on temporary worker visas. Everyone comprehend this so far? Assimilation was always the objective in the scriptures, both in the biblical and American immigration. So any stranger coming to America must be committed to becoming an American in beliefs, habits, and practices. We all hold to the same compact and agreement. The seven articles of the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. We go through the 27 amendments and the, the Bill of Rights. But, for example, if you come committed to Sharia courts rather than constitutional courts or to preserve your own separate financial system or your own educational system, language, custom, so forth, then you are not the stranger that God instructed to be welcomed into the land. It should be very easy for a Christian to understand. If we want to live in heaven, if we want to live in heaven, if we want to become a citizen in that new land, we must fully embrace the standards, values, beliefs, and practices that God has established for his kingdom. We cannot just show up at heaven and be welcomed in but must renounce our former way of life and confirm, uh, excuse me, conform and assimilate into God's system. How many times a day does a good man miss the mark, a good woman miss the mark? And the idea is this is what God requires. So any notion that Leviticus 19.34, command to love the stranger, translate into a mandate for open border and unrestricted immigration is clearly ridiculous according to Scripture. It's just, you can't, there's no other way around it. But listen to this. Assimilation is the key word in immigration policy, and any stranger coming to any nation must be fully committed to becoming a contributor to the good of that nation. Now, I know I've divided the young people in the room. They're upset, but give me a minute. I'll, I'll irritate the older folks, too. <laughs> America's founding fathers built the most successful constitutional republic in the history of the world. As part of that, they articulated and implemented a number of time-tested immigration principles that strengthened and benefited the nation at large. Almost finished. I'll finish by 1230. Significantly, America's early views on immigration closely reflected biblical ones. This was evident in both the writings of the founding fathers and then in the subsequent immigration laws they passed afterwards. We would do well 
uh, to listen to their recommendations. So here are some. By the way, first of all, seven of the 39 men who signed the Constitution were immigrants. In fact, two of the three men most associated with its passage, Alexander Hamilton and James Wilson, were foreign-born. One of the three men who wrote the Federalist Papers explaining the Constitution was also born abroad. Thomas Jefferson, another pro-immigration founder, also warned against the dangers of non-assimilation. They will bring with them the principles of governments they leave, imbibed in their early youth, These old principles with their language, they will translate to their children and they will infuse into their old spirit the warped and biasness of its directions. The founders also recognize that some immigrants should be excluded as affirmed by the founding father, Fisher Ames. The safety of the republic so plainly requires that the power of expelling or refusing admission to aliens as constitution signer Rufus King specifically noted, I cannot persuade myself that the malcontents of any character or country will ever become useful citizens. And when the Constitution went into effect in 1789, it stipulated that Congress could establish a uniform rule of naturalization. I'm almost finished. They wrote, the immigrant must have good moral character. The immigrant must not only support the Constitution and our government and laws, but also renounce allegiance to any other nation or loyalty to any other system. Believe in the equality of all Americans and renounce any title of nobility, a residency requirement of five years in the United States before citizenship, The children of naturalized citizens also become citizens at the same time. There are no anchor babies. Citizenship goes from parent to child, not child to parent. Security risks can be deported and permanently banned from the United States. The government must protect the borders during times of war. And by the way, there's a term called desuetude, desuetude. The main facilitator of illegal immigration is a government that does nothing to change the broken system or enforce the existing laws. When laws are on the books but not enforced, the law is desuetude. It is regarded as essentially ceasing to exist. Now, I know the code to my front door. If you don't have it, you're not welcome. You may knock on the door, and we may let you in. But if you try to come in, be careful. I will stop you. At my house, we have a gate. We live in an HOA. We're required to lock that gate because when we purchased the house, there was a jacuzzi. We're required to lock the jacuzzi and lock the gate. Because if the neighbor next door has a child that gets through that gate and is enticed into this open jacuzzi with this lovely water on a hot summer day and jumps in and drowns, I am liable for the death of that child because I entice that child. The boundary of my house, they came in and drowned. And I'm liable. The point is this. Over 30% of the women who try to get into the United States crossing our border, not in ports of entry, are raped. Child trafficking, drugs come through these borders. It's awful. And we're saying it's a crisis. First we said it wasn't a crisis, and then we said it's a manufactured crisis, and now it's a crisis, and everyone agrees it's a crisis. But we're enticing. We haven't locked the gate. And as the people are being affected by it, we all have compassion. I, that, that child drowned in that It broke my heart. Made me angry. I don't like seeing the, the cages, regardless of what president put them up, and we can all argue and drive in the car and argue as a family. But it's a problem. But one thing I do know is no one should be able to enter your home illegally or your sovereign country illegally. 
and, the, and the folks who are saying amen are older folks. And I promise you younger folks a chance. Real quick, one last thing. There's two more things for the older folks, and then we're going to help the younger folks. 1776, Virginia Declaration of Rights, that no free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people, but by a firm adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, frugality, and virtue, and by frequent recurrence to fundamental principles, that's Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. That's your job to impart it to your children. Only immoral people can govern a republic. By the way, if you were wondering, heaven has strict immigration policies, hell has no borders. Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Now it's, now it's time to jump on all you clapping. You know why your kids struggle? It's because you love this stuff. This is like red meat. But you know what they struggle over? What is your reading of it? Mom, Dad, what is your reading of it? Mom, Dad, who's your neighbor? Who do you have compassion on? You always decry all this stuff, but what have you done? What are you doing? How do you give? What does it ever cost you? He had compassion. I read the scripture. He had compassion. He bound up his wounds. He put him in his car or on his beast of burden. He took him to the hotel. He paid his expenses. He did these things. All you want is these people out of our community. All you want is that. I want to build rescue missions. Now granted, I want to do it with government money, but, but that's because I think socialism will work. Tell me why it wouldn't. And you can't even say because the scripture says, thou shalt not covet and thou shalt not steal and you're taking someone else's. And anyways, I, I don't. The issue is nobody knows how to respond because all the stuff I shared with you, nobody's instructed their families about. But the one thing we can see in this is he had compassion on him. And really what they're looking at, the younger folks, they want to see a great example of compassion. And the reason why I hate this passage of Scripture, especially with, and when I say hate, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but Romans 13, owe no one anything except to love one another. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And you know what? It is so easy for me to justify who my neighbor is. I love to do good things for people in the church who agree with my positions. I love to do good things for the people who I kind of like. But to take somebody that is so far out of the realm that I don't associate with and to love them, and you hear me say it all the time, people are not the enemy, they're the opportunity. I have to really watch myself saying that from this pulpit because every time I do, God tests me the following week. And I look at him and I go, you are an opportunity. And since you are, Super big opportunity. This is the best opportunity that's come along ever. And do good to those who spitefully use you. Bless your heart. Count it all joy when you suffer things from other people. You opportunity, you. 
And, and here's the bummer. The kids are watching because things are caught, not taught. And you're supposed to teach them along the way and along the, and they're listening to what you're saying, but they're watching what you're doing. And my son enjoys the drive in the car and talking about these things, but he is watching me. He wants to see if it matches. You can have these strong political stances and all these other things, but he had compassion. And the question is, has anything cost you anything lately? And has it cost you something for somebody that you would typically despise? Now, I don't despise these folks, but I want to tell you how this hit home because I can't take people where I'm not willing to go myself. I'm back in Texas, Dallas, Texas, speaking in an upper room gathering or some event. I don't even remember what it was. And I go to visit a friend's house who lives there now. And uh, they're, they're an opportunity, not the enemy, because they left California and moved to Texas. Anyways, and they're an opportunity. Um, and I'm, that's, I thought you'd laugh, but you didn't, and it's upsetting me there. So, but you're an opportunity too, so where were we? So I get back there, and they're, they're talking about how they were having their house remodeled, and, and they bought it for so cheap in Texas, and they saved so much money when they tried the <laughs> opportunity. And, and as they're talking about this new house that they're remodeling and all these things, they said when we had the remodeling crew come in, and they worked, and, and, and uh, I was watching as the work crew was working on the house, the, the one person was saying, I noticed that one of the workers who didn't speak a lick of English was praying during their lunch break. The others were all, you know, doing stuff, and he, he was fervently praying during his lunch break, and he just meager sandwich, but just so thankful, Lord. You could just see the prayer was so sincere. And I was really touching. And then I noticed, this person said, I noticed how that worker, whatever they did, they did as unto the Lord. And there was joy in their work. And they were smiling and singing worship songs during the day. And the other workers were like, hey, tone it down. We're getting paid by the hour. You don't want to ruin the curve for the rest of us. And he's just putting it all in. And finally, this person goes up and wants to know more about them and starts to get to know them. That's a problem. You have compassion. And now you got to step into their world. And they step in and they start seeing that they've got immigration issues and they're here on political asylum because they had been in the military in their country in Latin America. And then when they got out of the military and finished their tour of service, the, the narcos, the, 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 uh, the, the drug runners that they would always go after as the military, once you get out of the military, you no longer have that protection. They come after you to take, care, take your family out. His wife was an attorney. He was military. He had started a job. He had a child, and they came after him. He had to leave at night with the clothes on his back, and they left everything. Came to America, and they were sleeping in a, in a studio with, with no beds, just on the floor. They had one bed, but they gave it to their boy, I think. And he's going to work as a tradesman. And as I'm listening to this story, I said, can I meet him? And they came over to the house, and we greeted and they were just as, as joyful as they'd been described. I'm busy. I got a lot of responsibilities here. And the last thing I need is another employee in the church. I said, why don't you come work for us? I don't know. We're going to get you a house. We'll figure it out. We'll get your boy schooling. We'll do whatever it is. We'll figure it out. We got them in Bethany on the hill and somebody else and then two families were willing to house them and one is doing it right now and another did it for a season of time and we've employed him here and we've employed his wife and they're learning English and they're, they're doing their immigration and, they're, and we, we sent them back to Dallas to finish their immigration and we've been going through all this. And you know what? It's expensive. And it requires effort. But that 
is the application of the text. This is what's required. And this is what we all should be doing in some capacity. Be moved by that. Be stretched. Because the community is just, and here's the beauty of it. They want to assimilate. They have been to every single one of the um, American Legacy series. And they're learning English. Elizabeth is learning faster than Duan, but bless her heart, they're both learning. And they take this stuff back and they translate it. They're here. Uh, Elizabeth, Duan, stand up. Will you stand for us? Amen. We'll leave with this. It's two minutes. I told you at 1230. We'll finish with this. Wherever you are on the spectrum, and some of the younger folks are touched by the compassion, others are, are moved by the, the stuff, and then the Lord, by Luke 10, brings it all together. They're not mutually exclusive. They go together. Okay? And if you struggle with it going together, remember what Jesus said to the lawyer. He gave him that entire description, and when he described the man who was beaten and left half dead... That was you, that was me. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He loved us when no one else would. He had compassion on us while we were yet sinners. And what he did for us individually, we do for one another. And as we're touched by his word, we instill that in our children to establish a place that people want to come to because its people are governed by compassion and they're moved. All these work together, civil, family, individual. It's all important. Instruct the entirety of it. Luke chapter 10 brings it all together because Christ is the one who saved that man. Saved that man. He's the good Samaritan. We're the thief. Or excuse me, we're the, we're the bloodied man. We've been robbed and left for dead. God saved us. As Christ has loved you, so love one another.